0: Hi everybody. Um welcome to chapter five of this podcast, this series, these recordings, um, however we're <laughs> deciding to call these. Um and we're continuing with uh Leslie Newbigin's uh book Sin and Salvation. Um so through chapters one and four, we focus on the sin part and five to eight is the salvation. Um, and during our discussions. Uh, Within the first four chapters, we were talking about sin and how because of the results of sin, man is left in a state of contradiction and man is not able to um, save himself. And we're leading into chapter five, which is this ultimate idea of Christ being this uh, savior who is uh, needed for the salvation of all men. So, Brian, do you mind kind of just giving a overview of this chapter?
1: Yeah. Uh, Basically, this chapter, like you're saying, Benoit, it's a transition into salvation. We go, I think chapter six is a much deeper look into the salvation that Jesus accomplishes for us. Chapter five is about God's preparation for salvation, which is interesting because it kind of, leads you to this question, like, why would God need to prepare humankind for salvation? If mankind is in the situation where it needs to be saved from sin, um, and from the consequences of sin, which is ultimately death, uh, then why would God need to prepare, you know, the, the world or the human race for salvation? Why couldn't he just save? Right. And I think that's why New Begin spent so much time in chapters one through four, uh, like you were saying earlier, Benoit, in um, laying out what sin is, so that it, it once you understand what sin is, you understand why human beings would need to be prepared for salvation. Because sin is not just, you know, some court of... I mean, we have a lot of analogies for sin, but ultimately when you look at New Begin's very comprehensive like exploration of what sin is, it's not just like the stain on the human soul right Like that's the way we often think of sin it's like just some sort of stain on a glass that you need to wipe you know you need to wipe away you need to clean it you need to cleanse yourself from sin but the heart of sin is not that the heart of sin is the breaking of a relationship and so if god is going to save human beings from sin that means he has to repair relationships And he has to repair it in such a way that human beings want like there's all this stuff that he can do but ultimately he has to repair relationship in such a way that human beings who are caught up imprisoned by this sin also willingly repair that relationship with him ultimately it was an action of god it's totally an action of god it's totally dependent on the grace of god the act of salvation but It's an act of God that mysteriously works within itself the human response of wanting to be saved. And so that's what's crazy about um, the kind of salvation that God has to accomplish. That's what's so complicated about the salvation that God has to accomplish. It's not just the wiping away of sin, it's the repairing of a relationship. And so in order to do that, God has to work person to person. And Newbegin talks about this in this chapter, like salvation cannot be... um, God just revealing himself in like a dream or a vision to every individual person. I mean, he could have done it that way, I guess. But in order to repair relationship with not just Benoit or with Brian, but with Benoit and Brian together, he needs to act in a way that creates a community. Because remember, the the alienation of sin is not just um, alienation with God, it's also an alienation with one another, and it's an alienation with ourselves, within ourselves. Uh, and so it that total, like very holistic salvation needs to be accomplished. Like it all of those states of contradiction need to be healed in order for a human being to truly be saved. And so that that's what Nubigan talks about in this chapter. He talks about how God prepares the human race. For a salvation that ultimately is for the entire human race but he has to begin somewhere and he starts with abraham right and through abraham he builds up this nation of israel and he chooses israel it talks about the election of israel right and again there are a lot of questions about that why would god have to start with this specific community but that is the mode in which god's salvation is going to operate he starts with one person he creates a community through that person. And then he sort of like commits himself very intensely to that people. And through the story of that commitment and Israel's continual rejection of God, uh, we begin to see, like, we begin to be pointed towards the kind of salvation that the human race needs. And the way we're pointed to that is through these three specific signs or themes or types that recur throughout the story of Israel. And those themes are the themes of the prophet, uh, the person who is called to return the people, to call the people to return to the purposes of God and to discern and obey his will, through the theme of the uh, priest who is supposed to preside over the system of sacrifice, prayer and ritual. Uh, to enable sinful human beings to have fellowship with the holy God. And then finally, through this theme of the king of Israel. Uh, and the the king, excuse me, the king represents this uh, archetype of how God's rule would be carried out in the life of an earthly community. So those are the three themes. and And in each of those themes, it's almost like God is showing us through the, the story of Israel, how, like, just how unable to save ourselves we really are. Because each of those themes provide a lot of hope, but ultimately end at the end of the Old Testament in a state of contradiction with themselves, which is always the result of sin, right? And so we find that though there is great promise in the prophet, the priest, and the king, ultimately they are not able to bring the salvation that we need. God himself must become the prophet, the priest, and the king for us in order for us to have salvation. And so through this, like, it's basically an exploration of the Old Testament as a whole, but through this chapter, New Begin is basically able to, like, set up the work of salvation that Jesus accomplishes through his life, death, and resurrection. And we'll get to that in chapter 6.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um... And just to, I guess, expand, we're gonna, Well, I'm gonna be asking uh, some questions to you, Brian, about different uh, parts of the chapter. And I guess the first one, which is an idea or a thought that was introduced in the beginning of the chapter, is the idea of salvation being a physical act um, versus salvation just being some type of knowledge or uh, an individual's discovery. You can compare this maybe to like, eastern religions of this idea of enlightenment or this idea of just transcending um whatever situation you're in um could you maybe expand more on this idea of why salvation um needs to be a physical act or why it's superior or why it needs to be um embodied in a physical act rather than just being some type of self-discovery
1: yeah um I think you you kept saying physical, and I think that's appropriate, but I would probably use like in historical events, like mm-hmm. in acts of history, I think that captures the idea maybe a little bit better. Um, like the, the act of salvation has to happen in history, which means that we have to be students of that history, right? And why is that? I get what your question is. It's like, why is that? Why is in other religions, in other philosophical systems, it's more like sin or our problem the problem of the human condition is ignorance and so what we need to quote unquote save humanity is the right knowledge um but there's a difference between the, i i think in a way christianity or the kind of salvation uh, god wants to accomplish it is about knowledge but it's knowledge in a different sense so like The knowledge that other religious systems wants human beings to have, or philosophical systems wants human beings to have, is knowledge about something, right? Like the right, you you have to have the right idea about the way the world is. And that's true as far as it goes, but because the Bible defines sin as the breaking of relationship, the kind of knowledge God wants human beings to have is not the not knowledge about him but knowledge of him like the kind of relationship that a father has of his child or a husband has of his wife or i mean those are the analogies right or a king has of his subjects or a shepherd has of his sheep it's like that kind of relational knowledge that god wants to establish with human beings therefore that relational That that type of relational knowledge cannot be, ultimate ultimately cannot be expressed in a book, or in like some sort of enlightenment. Uh, It has to be experienced in a relationship, which means it has to be embodied in time, because relationships are embodied in time, um, and embedded in time, and that is why salvation, as you said, has to be. Like in a way, physical, embodied, historical. It has to happen in history. It has to happen through a sequence of events. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, I think, I think that is the best I can answer that question. There is also an element of like it's up to the sovereignty of God, which I, I don't want to make that sound like it's a. I don't know, you could say that about everything, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's an easy answer. Right. But there is there is a sense in which, like, this is also the way in which God has freely chosen to act, right? So could he have done otherwise? Yeah, like, um, in theory, yes, he could have, but that's not the way in which he has chosen to act. And he's cho and he hasn't chosen this arbitrarily. He's chosen the way he has acted because that is the way that he wants to express. His character of love, and love is embodied, experienced in relationships. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and also clarifies uh, that, I guess, that that um, that idea of salvation as well. Um, and to expand, or to maybe ask another question, going off this idea of a sequence of events, um, a lot of it has to do with Israel and the Jewish people. And Newbegin poses a question, and I'll just put it like as in quotes of how he says it. Uh, Why should I study the history of this obscure and unattractive tribe? Why should I not study what God has done for my own people and my own land? Can I not find him in these things? So I guess the main question is, why Israel? Why the lineage of the Jewish people leading up to Jesus? Why all of these events why israel
1: yeah it's a really good question um i think there there are some challenges to us in wanting to pay attention to like the history of this very specific and in many ways like marginal Mm -hmm. group of people um and i I don't say that to be like uh, pejorative but like it when I was a when I was a kid, I was really into the history of world empires. You know, I really nerded out on that, uh, and so I would study like the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Egyptian Empire, uh, the Babylonians, all these like great world the the four early world civilizations, right? And um, and the Jews or the 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 people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, eventually the kingdom of Israel. Uh, it doesn't really like compared to some of the great feats of these like ancient civilizations and so why is it that this particular people is lifted up by God um and and so that's one objection it's like it seems from you know when we look at world affairs it seems like the merits quote-unquote or worth quote-unquote of this group of people doesn't compare to some of the great ancient civilizations like alexander the great you know conquering most of the known world or or genghis khan then another objection or challenge is that um in like our globalized world today there there's kind of a response uh it's continuing It, it was always there but i think it's kind of like becoming uh, more prominent now. Like there's there's this response to the old colonialism that a lot of people experienced uh, and they experienced it in all kinds of different ways. Um, they experienced it through like the empires of Europe colonizing Africa and India and China, uh, China itself to an extent in a different kind of way. Uh, they're experiencing it through the transatlantic slave trade and, and like the consequences of that. They're experiencing it in the fact that their own people like their parents or grandparents immigrated from those countries to the west for economic opportunity and so there's all this like question about ethnic identity and an attempt to find the goodness in our ethnic identity and so it can be challenging to hear that no 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 like as a malayali indian or as an indian don't when you want to, you know, when you want to study the acts of God, don't study, you know, the Indus River civilization. Don't study the ancient Chera kings of Travancore or something, you know, like study Israel, study Moses, you know, people who are not directly, biologically, genetically like linked to us. That's where God has acted. And so that's challenging. It's, uh, it's like Naaman the Syrian said in, in the chapter, of Qu- New Begin was quoting that, uh, you know, why why do I have to wash myself in the rivers of the Jordan? Why, I, have, I have rivers in my own country. I have the rivers of Damascus. Why can't I wash myself there? Uh, and to some degree, it, this is similar to my answer earlier, but like to some degree, it is a mystery right uh, it i don't think it was arbitrary because god never acts arbitrarily but it there is a there's an element of mystery here in that god chose the the people of israel god chose abraham just because he chose them you know like there's an element of god's free choice here that we cannot um circumscribe or limit uh but on reflection as new writes like Because God's nature is love, and love only exists in concrete human relationships, um, you know, like we can talk about, so to flesh that out a little bit, we can talk about, I love the human race, right? And that's like this abstract idea. But I don't, like when I think about what love really is, I can only really like convey that in the love I have for my wife. Or my kids or my parents or my neighbors uh, my friends at church or at work that's how my love for the human race is expressed and so god's love god's nature is love but it has to be expressed in concrete human relationships and yet the situation that sin has uh, produced is that humankind has rejected him right humankind does not want to be in relationship of love with him and so he had to start by intensely focusing on one person, Abram, who became Abraham, right? He he entered into a love relationship, a covenant with Abraham. And he promised Abraham that through his relationship with Abraham, he would bless all the world. I think that's Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Through my blessing of you, all the nations of the world will will be blessed. And so God is establishing this covenant relationship so that he can begin creating his own family. But the purpose of that is that that family would eventually encompass the entire human race. Um, and so that's why he has to start with this very particular set of people and a very particular history. I also think, like, finally, there there is, like, Paul's famous phrase, like, God has chosen the weak to shame the strong. Um, I think God has chosen this people who really lived at like the crossroads of empire right like they were always at the mercy of greater powers except for very small periods of time like the reign of david or the reign of solomon um for a period like a very brief period with the maccabees they were also independent but most of the time they were at the mercy of much greater world powers who were always like kind of their. Their land, their territory, was on the way to greater enemies that they were—they wanted to conquer, right? Greater riches that they wanted, and so they were always at the mercy of these greater forces. And I think God intentionally chose that for Israel, so that this would be a people who are always kind of in a pressure cooker, um, who are always sort of very dependent on Him for protection and for existence, even. Um, And and, yeah, I mean, there's more to to be said about that, but I think that's the beginning of, uh, that's beginning to try and understand why he chose Israel.
0: Right, and just a follow-up question, and this might just tie in a few different ideas. Um, New Begin brings up this idea of salvation is not prepared for the individual, but the human race together. Um, Mm -hmm. Like we're talking about sin is not just a, it's like uh it's not just between us and god but it's also between us and everyone else it's our relationships um and also talking with talking about the jewish people um so do you mind expanding on why salvation is important or why salvation needs to be looked through the lens of the human race together versus just the individual and um going back to this idea of israel yeah um
1: I mean, I think it's in 1st or 2nd Timothy, I'm forgetting, but it talks about like God wills all to be saved and that's why he's patient with humankind because he wants everyone to repent and return. And there's this idea that God is not satisfied with one righteous person. Uh, I mean, not. Uh, let me clarify that. I don't mean that he's not pleased with that person. I mean that that's not enough for God. Like God, God's love and his beauty and his holiness are such that he wants to share that with all of creation. Um, ultimately, we are told mysteriously that there are people who will reject you know, the goodness of who he is, which is a tragic mystery in and of itself. But God's intention is to share himself, which is the greatest thing we could experience. It's to share himself, it's to share his relationship with all of creation. And human, humankind in the collective sense, like humankind in the collective sense, uh, has a special role to play in that filling of the universe with himself. Because humankind is meant to be the image of God in the temple that is his universe. Uh, We're supposed to embody the very presence and rule of God and that's this extremely high calling. And in the end, God will not be thwarted in his purpose of having that kind of humankind that lives out its true vocation. And so that's why he's not looking to you know, just save Benoit. He wants Benoit and all the network of people in which Benoit is placed, right? So, so that you would be the presence of God in your network, and thereby almost like infect them into being the presence of God in their networks. And so it just continues to spread until it, again, ac- encompasses the entire human race, not only in space, but also in time. Uh, and that's why God is a God who is faithful, not just to nations or to certain peoples at a certain time, but he's faithful across generations too, because he's acting among- Along both dimensions space and time, which is pretty awesome um, Yeah, I mean does that answer the question?
0: Yeah, I, I think so um, And to I guess go forward with chapter 5 one of the main uh, I guess breakdowns is New Begin talking about what in the Old Testament there were three common themes the idea of the prophet the priest and the king mm-hmm. and We can go through each and each of the three so we can first start off Uh, with the prophet, and Newbigin brings up that the idea of the prophet was that knowledge of the prophet is what brought salvation. So in the Old Testament, there is this idea that what the knowledge of the prophets had, it would bring salvation. Um, Do you mind expanding more about the prophets of the Old Testament and how it ultimately kind of failed until the coming of Christ?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously the first great prophet is moses um and the job description of the prophet is to declare to the people the purposes of god and that's what moses does and after him the line of prophets prophets uh, continually rise up to remind people of the purposes of god why is that necessary because the people of israel need to be reminded that god is um He's not just, so he, he loves them, but he also has a plan for them. And that plan is for them to be sort of the prototype of the human new human family he is trying to create, the new human civilization centered on himself that he is trying to bring about in human history. And they have to over and over again be reminded of that because they're continually straying from that purpose. Um, but... As you, um, as Israel continues on in its history, it is, it becomes more and more apparent how difficult it is to actually live out that vocation. Um, Because what happens is like you start off with Moses and he gives you a set of laws, right? Um, And as time goes on, those laws kind of like accrete or accumulate, and there are new laws and new situations, um, and they get a little bit more complicated, but you start to realize, like the prophets start to say to the Israelites, like, hey, you're doing some of these, you're doing these sacrifices in in the way God has commanded you to, you are, you know, um, you're following X, Y, and Z law, but your obedience is actually not pleasing to God, because even though you're obeying outwardly, you're not doing... You're not actually accomplishing what God meant the law to accomplish, which was eventually, like, ultimately to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Like, that's one way to summarize what the law was. You know, that's from Micah. Um, And so the prophets are saying, in some ways, like, yes, the law is extremely important. But in some ways, like, even though you're obeying the law, kind of, you're actually not fulfilling the spirit of the law. Uh, you're you're kind of like following the regulations, but your heart is not offering up, you know, the kind of mercy and the kind of care for your poor neighbor, for the immigrant, for the widow that you're really supposed to be doing. And so this became very frustrating for um, – for the Israelites and also even for some of the prophets. Like you see in the prophetic tradition, eventually it begins to evolve too. And there's more and more emphasis on the kind of laws that human beings can keep, right? Like, so the negative prohibitions, the ceremonial laws, the the tithe rules, this might be a good example. It's like, um, you have a tithe rule, let's say it's, I give, it's more complicated back in the day, but I'm gonna simplify it. It's like the tithe rule is I give 10% of my income, right? to the temple. Um, And there are people who follow that. And they're like, yes, check, I follow the law of God. But the purpose of the law was not just like, yes, I gave 10% of my income to God, check, I'm good. The purpose of the law was to create, the law was meant to be a teacher that creates this kind of people that when they see injustice, when they see people suffering, when they see people being oppressed, their heart would go out to them. It wouldn't just be like, I've given my portion to God. It's like, I give my 10% to God in order to remind myself that all of me belongs to God. There's not some part of myself I can cabin out from God. All of me belongs to God, and therefore all of me belongs to my neighbor. Uh, So there's this like radical other centeredness that becomes the heart of the Israelite and Jewish people. and what actually happened was that fastidious like keeping of the law rigorous keeping of the law um, meant that the the Israelites and the Jewish people didn't actually focus on that deeper or what Jesus calls the greater part of the law right so that's why Jesus um, shows like he, he condemns the Pharisees right like uh, he says, you tie the mint and cumin, but you devour wi- widows' houses. You, you, you neglect the greater parts of the law. Um, and, and it's kind of understandable. It's like, if the law is so, if it becomes apparent to someone that the law as a whole is so hard to keep, uh, what you will do is you will turn your focus towards those parts of the law that you can keep and try to be like really, really rigorous in keeping those and you kind of ignore the parts that like do justice have mercy that seems so amorphous right like how do i do that but type 10 percent, wash my hands like 20 million times a day those are things i can do um so that produced within the pharisees the pharisees are really the heirs of the prophetic tradition uh we may not always understand that like when we're just reading the bible but when you look at the pharisees they're kind of the people who who say if we can just keep the law and call the people to keeping the law even for just a single day then the kingdom of god will come uh and so they're the people who are like fanatically devoted to the law but in this limited way and jesus calls them out on that jesus exposes their hypocrisy and the fact that ultimately uh, their self-righteousness shows that they are enemies of the law because the sum of the law is love the sum of the law is love the true fulfillment of the law is in the production of people who are loving and so the fact that because they were self-righteous they were actually superior they had sort of a superior mentality and they were loveless showed that they were really enemies of the law and so jesus exposes that and that's why they hit him and kill, him, right eventually um and so the witness of the prophets leads it does lead to a clearer understanding of god's will that's the purpose of the prophets but the experience of israel teaches us that again this is kind of earlier conversation but the knowledge of what god's will is alone does not bring salvation right i can't just know what god's will is and then i'll be saved you have to love what god's will is um and that's what you know that's that's why all of the prophets from moses to john the baptist realized that ultimately god himself would have to come not not god himself but there would have to be a representative of god i don't i'm not i don't think they understood it would be god himself but they knew that there was going to have to be someone sent from god a greater prophet who would be born under the law and fulfill the law to its ultimate final limit And only in that person would the law really do its work, um, really fulfill what it was meant to do, to establish righteousness. And so the prophets end up, by the end of the Old Testament, they end up pointing outside of themselves.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, And just to summarize, I guess, is this idea of that Um, the prophets of the Old Testament, though they were bringing forth this idea of purity um, for the law to be uh, this teacher and to um, Bring forth this idea of salvation. It did the complete opposite. It created pride and self-righteousness seen with the Pharisees Um, So there is this idea of then idea of Jesus being this true prophet or this greater prophet um, compared to all the prophets in the Old Testament Um, the next uh, idea is uh, the priest in the Old Testament and there's uh, I guess this uh, problem when in the Old Testament of of this priest of a priest being good enough to bring a sacrifice or to have a sacrifice to bring for salvation Um, is there there's always this idea of bringing some type of sacrifice being good enough being uh, pure enough so yeah. could we maybe uh, expand on this idea of the priest in the yeah. Old Testament?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, even from the very beginning, like at, from the time of Moses, Israel understood that it would not be able to keep God's law. And so there needed to be some provision made by which sinful men and women of Israel could still abide in the fellowship of holy God. And so the priesthood it's kind of like the mech the sacrificial system all that that's the mechanism by which holy god is able to dwell with sinful human beings that was the purpose of it. it was to give israel some sort of confidence that even though it does not keep the law it can it can still like approach god without you know being destroyed you know the, the way like you know uh, uh if we try to walk into like if we tried to approach the sun, we would get annihilated, right? Because we are not compatible with the sun. Our existence is not compatible with being too close to the sun. And and Israel conceived of God in the same way. The holiness of God ultimately is not compatible with sin. And so if human beings are mired in sin by not obeying God's law, then if they try to approach God, they'll be annihilated. Uh, and so there needs to be some sort of system to kind of like deal with that. And that's what the sacrificial system was. and the priests were chosen to be the mediators um, to be the people who are set apart to bring man's sacrifices to God. And what's and I just want to be really clear about this, this is the mechanism God provided Israel, right? This was not a, a man-made system of rituals, prayers and sacrifices. This is the means God provided to Moses and eventually to all of Israel so that Israel could approach him with confidence that they wouldn't be you know destroyed because of their sin. Uh, and the priest has a, like a vital mediating role to play in that system. But we see in the Old Testament as time goes on that the way the sacrificial system works evolves. And I think people don't always I mean you read the Old Testament books if you do read those books, you may not like pick up on that, but that's like a definite stream throughout Like that's a definite like sub story that's happening throughout the Old Testament books. Because early on, you could make sacrifices to God anywhere that there was a priest. Uh, So it wasn't restricted to one place. All you needed to do was just have a priest there. And the priest would play that mediating role. But it wasn't like the places in which the sacrifices could be offered was like limited. It's just anywhere there's a priest. But as time went on, the places where sacrifices could validly be made to God, Uh, began to be like cabined or restricted. Uh, And ultimately you could only offer right sacrifices to God in the the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, And so what was the point of that? Like, why did that happen? Uh, And thematically in the story, what is happening is that as Israel spends more time with God uh, throughout the generations, its knowledge of who God is deepens. Like God is not just a God, you know, among the many gods of the nations. Israel begins to develop this understanding that this God who has chosen them is actually the God of gods. He's the king of gods. Uh, He is the true creator. And so like, as they begin to realize this, the distance of God from them becomes heightened. So as their knowledge of God deepens, the distance of God from them is heightened. And therefore, they become much more, uh, the way of sacrifice becomes much more defined and limited because there's a lot more fear in approaching this God who is the God of gods. Uh, And so what ends up happening by the end of the Old Testament is that previously you had this whole system of, this whole sacrificial system existed to give Ordinary men and women confidence that they could dwell with God and establish relationship with God despite their sin. Right. But by the end of the Old Testament, the order, ordinary man and woman could only very rarely offer sacrifices on their own. And they had to go to Jerusalem to do it. Um, and the ordinary man could never go to the center of the temple where the Holy of Holies is. They could never do that. Only the high priest could do that. And the high priest could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even then, the sacrifices would only atone for sins made in ignorance, not sins done deliberately. And so, you, again, you end up with this kind of contradiction, just like with the prophets, right? Um, the sacrificial system was meant to provide Israel a confident means for approaching God despite their sin and for taking away, absolving, cleansing them from sin. Um, But now, as Israel has come to a greater knowledge of who this God is, um, they realize that the sacrificial system cannot do what it was intended to do. It could only be a sign for the need for a way from man to God, but it itself could not be the way, because ultimately not all sins could be dealt with through the sacrificial system. And so you come to the end of the old testament The begin and by the time of the new testament when jesus is on the scene there's a sense that um the rituals of the temple are empty uh even in malachi like the priests of malachi are bored <laughs> like that's one of the reasons why malachi is condemning them if you if you read the book of malachi because the priests are bored because they don't think that the sacrifices do anything anymore uh, they don't feel they they're not confident that God is present in the temple period in the rebuilt temple after Nehemiah they're not confident God is present in that temple and also even if if he is that's worse because now they're all going to die so um the, you you end up in this place by the time Jesus gets on the scene where the sacrificial system just seems kind of pointless uh and the reason why that happens is that God is trying to show israel and also the world and us that really the the only way man can approach god is really if god approaches man if god takes on flesh to be the priest and the sacrifice for us and so that's uh the entire point of the uh letter to the hebrews um you know paul's letter to the galatians is really about how the the real fulfillment of the law is in Jesus Christ. That's really like the theme of Galatians. Uh, And in the same way, Hebrews is about how the fulfillment of the sacrificial system of the priesthood is in Jesus Christ, who provides in his own flesh and blood, the atonement, reconciling holy God and sinful man. Uh, So that's kind of like that theme and how it prepares the way for Christ.
0: Yeah, that makes everything much more clear. Uh, with the priest. And just to summarize, it's this idea with the Jewish people is that this idea of the priest was to, to bring more people um, to and make the invitation for to salvation wider. But what ended up ha- happening was that it fenced out more and more people, um, which makes ultimately Christ the true and high priest. Um, so the third um, theme that's seen in the Old Testament is the idea of the king and there's this idea of uh if there could be an anointed king to bring order in a kingdom to rule out evil and be saved um so this idea of a king ruling such a kingdom um so do you mind expanding more about this this theme of kings and kingdoms within the old testament
1: yeah the theme of the king in the old testament is extremely interesting it's really the search for the the right way the true manner in which god's role can be carried out in like the actual life of a community on earth um and it's interesting because it's you start off with uh no king right no king at all you have prophets like moses or joshua uh who are raised up to like kind of declare on behalf of God, like the law of God to the people. But by the time you get to Judges, there is no like one political leader. Each tribe kind of does its own thing. Uh, And over and over again, in the book of Judges, you see how this lack of a king leads to chaos. Um, There's this phrase that's repeated in the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, And by the end of Judges, you have like horrific, things being happened. Uh, There's the the man's concubine who's like raped in this horrific way. And then he cuts up her body and it leads and sends it to get like the other tribes to join him in an act of revenge on the people who did that. It's just a mess by the end of Judges, right? And so the way the story of how the kingship comes to Israel in first Samuel um, shows the double character of kingship. On the one hand, God's anointing of Saul through Samuel um, was God's act of mercy to deliver Israel from the repeated foreign oppression that was happening, even in the book of Judges. Uh, And yet, at the same time, 1 Samuel also shows that the demand for a king was a rebellion against God. It was a rejection against God. So when I say the double character of kingship, I'm saying kingship was a blessing by God for the people and yet it was also a rejection of God by the people. That's the double character of kingship okay. in the Old Testament. Uh, and you see that in the history of Israel's kings. That's actually like the whole point of first and second Kings, first and second chronicles. when you read those books after first and second Samuel, um, you see that that double character of kingship, the blessing of kingship, the benefits of kingship, but also the curse of kingship and the way in which kingship um, articulates the idolatry and and rejection and even hatred of God by Israel. So David David is like a good example of this too. David is a king after God's own heart, right? And yet during his reign, there are numerous atrocities and horrific sins committed. Uh, He neglects his family, which leads to this brutal civil war. He takes uh, one of his most loyal soldier's wife for himself. Um, You also see the double nature of kingship in Solomon. Solomon is the wisest of all kings in the history of the world. And yet, when you read his story, you see that by the end of his reign, he has led Israel towards the path of becoming a new Egypt, uh, which is what God delivered Israel out of to be a new kind of civilization. Instead, he's trying to mimic that civilization that God tried to lead Israel out of um so what's the effect of this um in the by the time of jesus right in the political memory of the jews david's reign is looked at back at as this kind of golden age um in american politics today like sometimes the 1950s is idealized right like as this time of peace and prosperity after world war ii uh you know white picket fences, suburban houses, everything was like so, so great. Eisenhower was president, um, you know, this great war hero. And so like, for I'm not saying like, that's the idealized memory for Americans, but that's kind of like an analogy for us. The Jews look back at the reign of David as this golden age for Israel. And the political hope of the Jews was that a true son of David would arise who would not only restore the golden age, he would actually make it even better. So he's not just gonna restore reign over Israel. This true son of David would extend Israel's reign over the entire world as a sign that Israel's God is the true God. That was the hope of the Jews by the time of Jesus. But when the true son of David finally came, that expectation was actually an obstacle to Jesus's ministry. You know, you see that in the story of Jesus, right? The people tried to force Jesus to be king. He had to withdraw, kind of hide himself. He had to prevent his disciples from acting as as though his kingdom were an earthly kingdom. Right. When James and and John were like kind of like trying to request, hey, can we be at your right and left hands or the disciples were arguing who's going to be the greatest among us in the kingdom? That's because they didn't understand what the kingdom was. They were expecting this. Jesus, as the true son of David, to extend this earthly kingdom over the entire world, build a world empire even greater than Rome, right? Um, and he had to, like, teach his disciples, that's not what I'm here for. Uh, he had to reject the temptation of the devil in the desert, right, to establish an earthly kingdom. And so you come to this situation by the time of Jesus, and even at the end of the early, of the New Testament, where the theme of the king ends in failure, right? Like by the end of the Old Testament, there is no king. Uh, the line of kings has, seems to have ended by the time of the Babylonian exile. When the Jews come back, they don't come back led by a descendant of David, right? They come back with Ezra and Nehemiah and, you know, sort of these these other figures who are not descendants of David. Um, and the reason why is because... Again, God is using this theme of the kingship to show the people, to show Israel and to show the world that earthly kingdoms can only be assigned to his true kingdom. The earthly king on his own cannot bring the true kingdom. And it and when earthly kings try to do so, they end up being enemies to the true kingdom. Uh, and when the true king finally did come, he was rejected, right? Because Because he rejected all of the trappings of earthly kingship
0: um there's this idea of of jesus uh being like his uh announcement of the kingdom kind of also being the inverse so it also even makes sense that the kingdom that jesus would be bring would be rejected or he would reject um all these earthly kingdoms and therefore be rejected as a whole um so throughout these three different ideas the prophet priest and king uh the common idea or the common thread line through line of it all is that they end up in self-contradiction within the old yeah. testament before christ um that these systems these ways of thinking of how salvation would be carried out um ended up being um not that effective at all if anything they just um created more uh sin they created more contradic- contradiction, contradiction <laughs> between ourselves and with each other and that's also why uh, salvation through Christ is so meaningful, because it reorients this whole paradigm of the idea of the prophet, the priest, and the king um, yeah. to be meaningful for all of us. Um, so we can then go into the uh, takeaways from this chapter. So Brian, I just want to ask you, what were uh, some te- takeaways um, that you find useful or some applications?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um... I think we have a tendency as Christians in the 21st century and Canada and the United States to devalue the Old Testament or to not really understand. We don't get it. Uh, we don't get why it's important. Um, but the takeaway for me is like the, the, the huge importance of the Old Testament in understanding the salvation that Christ accomplished Uh, because you see like and also just like the beauty of the Bible the coherence of the Bible the fact that this is is a not just like one book written by one author but is actually like a collection of books that contains written across centuries written actually across like thousands of years uh, and by many different authors in many different times and yet it has one coherent storyline that's pretty amazing you know um because you see through these stories like the the storyline of how the work of the prophets ends in the barren self-righteousness of the pharisees the work of the priests ends in the corrupt priesthood of annas and caiaphas empty ritualists who end up condemning jesus to death the work of the kings ends in the violent but futile revolts of the jewish patriots which ultimately ends in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, just like Jesus predicted in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so you see how these Old Testament stories are necessary for us to understand Jesus's salvation, and you also see the opposite. Like, you see that these Old T- Testament stories only come to some kind of takeaway or to some kind of meaning when they're reoriented around Christ. Because if you just end at the end of the Old Testament, again like you had said you end in self-contradiction it seems like the end of the road for each of these storylines what what is the way forward but when christ is brought into the picture now you see that all of those storylines are signs pointing outside of themselves for the salvation that god is working um and ultimately you understand It's kind of like when Jesus is walking with uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, and he describes like, they are grieving because they thought, they're like, they tell to Jesus who they think is a stranger at this point. It's after the resurrection. They don't recognize him. And they say, we thought he could have been the Messiah. And that Jesus, as the stranger, explains to them why the Messiah had to suffer and die in order to save in order to accomplish this purpose of saving Israel and the world. Um, And so again, it's like, the takeaway for me is that the Old Testament is, has this crucial part to play in understanding salvation, but it only makes sense when Christ is at the center of it. And I don't think we often do that in our Bible study or in our understanding of the Old Testament. We don't always make that connection between Christ and the Old Testament how Christ is a figure is the main character of the Old Testament. Yeah. So that's a takeaway for me, is we need to pay more attention to the Old Testament and we need to understand that Christ is the main character of the Old Testament, just as he is the main character of the New Testament.
0: All um, right. Yeah, I think, what about for yeah. yeah, yeah I think for me it's kind of a, it's pretty aligned to what you have to say. I think um, this chapter is helpful in kind of outline outlining the paradigms or the paradigms that sin kind of leaves with trying to resolve some uh, sense of salvation for people without christ and the thing is that um, we need to look at our own understanding of salvation and if that's in today's um today's time in today's culture um where are we looking towards for salvation um i mean we may very just like obliquely say it's in um in christ but in the same exact time we might be looking through other types of systems or different types of structures um so it's i think this chapter is helpful in the sense of seeing how um salvation that's brought up by in the, i guess what in the old testament is not so far off of what we could be doing today it's not just that we have more intelligence now that we can um, Figure, understand salvation. It's salvation in the end of the day, is something that was um, been reoriented and been um, set firm and create the foundation by Christ. Um, so it's just a, I think the takeaway for me is just to be able to see how these par. I guess yeah, these paradigms of sin or what sin would produce without um, the works of Christ and how. That could even be prevailing today in how like, we need to, I guess, be a little bit more centered in how we view salvation in the lens of Christ.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to sort of piggyback on what you just said, Benoit, because however you define salvation or however you define sin, most people or all people are engaged in a self-salvation project. We are trying to save ourselves from whatever negative situation we perceive ourselves to be in and the story of the old testament is the story of the old testament teaches us that all of those self-salvation projects are doomed to end in failure um in the same way that the line of prophets came to failure the line of priests came to failure the line of kings came to failure our self-salvation projects are doomed to failure and that's and So the purpose of those stories is to point us to our need for salvation outside of ourselves. And that's what chapter six is about. It's about how God accomplishes salvation for us in Jesus Christ.